Amen. <laughs> well, thank you, Dante and Cash. You did a great job. I will say that is one aspect of this lockdown that I have enjoyed. So let's thank God for that. It's been sweet to get a glimpse into the homes, and our kids are doing a great job with this. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible now to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 11. 6 to 11. This is going to function today as our starting point because the reality is, uh, and you'll notice, we're going to be jumping around uh, to various texts in Scripture today just to make sure we get a full comprehension of what this doctrine represents. And as we turn to this line, we're going to be considering these words. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, as I was preparing this week, it it really struck me that this is a line that is widely understood. Uh, Just as I was fleshing out all the points that we need to see from the text, it hit me that there's nothing here that you haven't heard before, I would imagine. Uh, Most of you sitting at home, you know this. It's widely understood, and yet it seems to me it's narrowly believed. And so what I want to do with our time today is we're we're very quickly going to unpack this doctrine, but then we're going to spend the bulk of our time applying it and considering the implications for our lives. So let's begin by unpacking it. Quickly, we want to ask this simple question, what does this mean? From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. As I said, we're going to look to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11 to begin to answer this question. Here we have the, the resurrected Christ Uh, coming and gathering together his disciples before he ascends to the Father. And he has one last thing to say to them. And so that's the scene that we pick up here, beginning in verse 6. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Beginning in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at, at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we've selected this text this morning because in this text it so clearly ties together the ascension of Christ with the return of Christ. These two ideas need to be understood together. That's why they're presented together in the Apostles' Creed. The the disciples, they're they're looking up into heaven. You can kind of picture this scene in your mind. The disciples, Jesus just spoke to them and now he's floated into heaven. If you were with Jesus and he floated into heaven, you would be staring at the clouds too. And they probably would have stood there for days, but the the angels appeared to them. And they said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus was taken up from you into heaven. That's the ascension. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that helps us to understand what we mean when we say, from thence he shall come. From whence? From thence. Just as you saw him go, so he will return. Jesus, who has ascended to heaven, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, is going to come as you saw him go. Now, when will that happen? We don't know. 
the, the disciples had lots of when questions before Jesus left, and he said, it's not for you to know. The Father has set these times in place. In Matthew 24, elsewhere, Jesus said, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So we're not privy to the when question. We, we don't have the answer there. And that's important for us to hear because some of us are inclined, like the disciples, to stand and stare up at the clouds. When is he coming? When is he coming? Maybe we need to hear those angels speak to us today. Hey, he'll come just as you saw him go, but you've got work to do. right? Jesus gave us a mission before he left. From the right hand of the Father, from that position of absolute authority, the King of all kings and the judge of all things will come. He'll descend from his heavenly throne. And on that day, in that moment, it will be a cataclysmic event. It will be a terrifying event, a world-shaping, changing event. The queen will bow down. All of the governors and kings and authorities will bow down. The atheist will ask for the mountains to, to cover over him. Jesus describes that day in Matthew 24. And just imagine this day that he describes here. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. The return of the king is going to be a cataclysmic event. The kingdom of the enemy will finally be thrown down. The devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire. The time for repentance will be over. And all people from all time will bow before the great king of kings. From thence he shall come. That's, that's what we mean when we say that first phrase. But when he comes, the first time he came, he came to seek and save the lost. But when Christ returns, he is coming to judge the quick and the dead. The quick is just another way of saying the living and the dead. He'll judge with absolute justice. And this day of judgment is sobering. Christian, I want to just invite you. We, I know for myself, sometimes I read through the scriptures and I'm just moving so quickly that I don't stop to... To imagine, you know, these are, they're written with vivid language because they're inviting us in to see with our mind's eye. See this scene in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we catch a scene of that 
great and terrible day of the Lord, that day of judgment, when all of the worldly pomp, all of the things that impress us now will fall to the floor. On that day, the great and the small will stand together. The men and women that we esteem so highly will stand with the men and women of history who have been all but forgotten. And nobody will know the difference and nobody will care. Because for the first time ever, we will see just how small and lowly we are. And Alexander the Great will stand next to a nobody who will stand next to Karl Marx, who will stand next to Adolf Hitler. And and nobody will stand before the Lord and boast of their power or their might because they will be like dust mites standing before the blazing sun. Trembling, awaiting judgment. Albert Muller says here, when he came the first time, he came in humility. But when he comes from where he's now seated, at the right hand of God, things will be very different. When he comes as the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord, he will come as the one to whom every knee shall bow. Elsewhere, Revelation describes Jesus as riding in with a robe dipped in blood. And we'll be judged. Judged by what was written in the books, according to what we have done. And if our names are not found written in the book of life, we will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. This is what we mean when we say, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, as I said from the beginning, that's not particularly complex. I don't imagine that you've heard anything new or novel over the last few moments. It's widely understood by Christians. We said that. But I, I think it's narrowly believed. And you say, Pastor, well, why would you say that? I would say that because if these things are true, they should change us. If these things are true, they should move us. Right? There are truths that move us. Isn't it true that if somebody came to you and they said, your house is on fire, and you looked up and you saw smoke, you would run. You would drop whatever you were doing and you would run because there are some truths that demand action. Christians, these are truths that demand action. So what I want to do with the time we have left is I just want to lean in and I want us to really sit in this and feel this because these things ought to compel us and drive us and thrust us into action. Here's the first truth that demands action. If you believe in the doctrine of the return of Christ and the final judgment, then you believe that the opportunity for repentance is coming to an end. It's a truth that demands action, isn't it? In, first, in 2 Peter 3, well, before we go there, I mean, so Scott touched on this last week. Remember, he asked the question early in his sermon. He said, well, why is it that when Jesus rose from the grave, why didn't he just immediately set everything right and, and initiate his kingdom and judge the evildoers and just, and just fix it? Remember, why didn't he? The, the, the disciples asked the same thing before Jesus ascends in our text here in, in Acts 1, 6 to 11. Remember, they say, well, Jesus, are you now going to establish your kingdom? They've got their their narrow scope and they're thinking, surely the time is now. But it wasn't the time. Instead, Jesus ascended and he waits. And the question is, well, why? Why the delay? We're living in the delay right now, you and I. Why? 2 Peter 3 answers the question. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach 
repentance. Right? So there's the why. It's the patience of God. There are people right now, maybe even listening, who are not in right relationship with God. Why is he waiting? Because he wills that none should perish. And he's giving you an opportunity right now to be right with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So we hear that and we see the patience of God. But keep reading. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So right now we are living within this this bubble of patience. But that day is coming to an end, the Bible says. And that day is going to come like a thief. It's coming. The opportunity for repentance is coming to an end. And so my question is, we acknowledge these things, but Christian, do you believe this? Because I know that there are people listening right now who are living in unrepentant, overt sin, and you know it. You know that there are things in your life that are sin, that are wrong, and yet you won't let them go. And you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but your life tells a different story. And you know, and you know that if you were to stand before God right now and say, didn't I do many mighty works in your name? Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. You haven't surrendered your life to him. So why is that? It's because you're, you're looking at your life and you're saying, I'm young. I have time. I'll, I'll let go of this. I'll deal with this maybe next week. Or maybe next month. Right now is not really an ideal time. I'm very busy with my work. I, I, I've got a lot going on in my personal life and my plate. I can't be scaling this back. It's going to be costly if I let this sin go. It's like, it's like you're in a house and it's the middle of the night and you hear the fire alarm going and there's smoke pouring in under your door. But you say, well, I probably have time. And so you, you set the alarm for another hour. That's what it's like. That's a dangerous game, Christian. That is a dangerous game. And it's not just dangerous for you. Did you know that? It's dangerous for, for all of your loved ones. All the people who love you and who are looking towards you and who are learning from you. It's dangerous for your kids. What do you think it says to your kids when mom and dad play with sin? When mom and dad don't take it seriously? When mom and dad put off dealing with it for another day or month or year? I'll tell you what it says. It says to your kids that sin is not a big deal. And God is not so holy. And Jesus is not coming back anytime soon. And the final judgment is nothing to fear. Our kids are learning those lessons, whether we believe it or not. They're seeing it in us. Who of you, if your child came to you in the middle of the night and said, Mom, Dad, there's smoke filling up the hallway. I think, I think we need to do something. Who of you would say, no, no, dear. Climb back into bed. We've got more time. It's going to be fine. Answer, none of you would say that. None of you would say that. And yet, how many of us are saying that with the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat our sin? This is a deadly, serious, dangerous game that we're playing. And our loved ones are watching. And maybe you're right. Maybe you do have more time. Maybe a month from now, you will be able to finally deal with that sin. And you'll climb out the window. You'll escape the fire. And you'll be safe. Maybe that's true. But I wonder if your loved ones will also have time. I wonder, I wonder how it will impact them. The lessons that they've learned from our carelessness. That is a sobering reminder, church. Woe to us if our children learn from us that the day of judgment is nothing to be feared. 
when God's word says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. His patience is a gift for us today. But his patience is not forever. And the opportunity for repentance is coming to an end, God's word says. And that's a terrifying truth because the second truth that should move us to action is this. Those who are not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20, 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Along with death and Hades, along with the devil and all of his angels, everyone who has not surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who is trusting in anything else for their salvation on that day of judgment will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said this. In Matthew 24, he warns, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. He goes on to say a few verses later, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same word for both, the punishment and the reward. Eternal, forever, forever reward or forever punishment. That is what is at stake. Now, again, I suspect that most of you listening right now would give intellectual affirmation to what I just said. You'd nod along and say, I'm, Pastor, I believe that to be true. You need to do some real hermeneutic gymnastics to get out of that. And by and large, people who like doing hermeneutic gymnastics don't hang around at our church for very long. So you'd say, yes, Pastor, I believe this. I know that's true. But do you believe it, Christian? Do you believe it? Because if you did, wouldn't that change you? Imagine for a moment that you wake up in the middle of the night and your neighbor's house is on fire. You smell smoke, you look out the window and you see the flames rising up and there's an elderly couple living in this house. What would you do? Well, I know what you would do. You would jump out of bed, you'd get your spouse to call 911 and you'd run across the street in your jammies and you would get in there and you would shout and you'd go in and you'd pull them out of the smoke. You'd do whatever it takes to rescue them, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Well, Jesus is telling us here that our neighbors are standing on the cusp of an eternity in hell where the flame of their torment will rise forever, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses the most colorful, vivid, horrifying language that we can imagine. And he speaks on hell time after time after time. Jesus is crystal clear that our neighbors are standing on the cusp of an eternity in the lake of fire. And yet how often do we hear that and it doesn't move us to do a thing? Why is it that I would run across the street in my jammies and dive into the smoke to rescue my neighbors from their physical suffering, but for the sake of their eternal souls, I wouldn't even walk across the road and knock on the door? Do we believe this? Either we are heartless cowards, or we don't believe these things that we're saying. And I'm preaching to myself right now. In reality, it's probably a bit of both, isn't it? This needs to change us. Many of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary from Portland, Oregon. And he felt this call from the Lord to, to go and to reach unreached people 
And uh, there was this group of people, this tribe called the Akas in Ecuador, I believe. Yes. And he and four of his friends made a pact that they were going to go and they were going to bring the gospel to these people. Now, the reason why they were unreached was because, A, it was difficult, but, B, they were notoriously violent, the Akas. But Jim Elliott and his, and his friends, his missionary partners, said, no, we're going to go. We're going to do what it takes because they haven't heard the gospel and they need to hear the gospel because they're going to stand before the judge. Woe to us if we don't tell them the gospel before that day. So they went. And initially they had some, some positive results. It's a complicated story. At some point in time, it was January 8th, 1956, the tribe turned on Jim and his four missionary partners and, and they killed all five of them. And their bodies were found downstream. And it is a terrifying story. But it, it gets crazier because Jim's widow, Elizabeth Elliot, she later went back to this tribe, to the Akas, and she reached them with the gospel. She became friends with the men who had murdered her husband, forgave them, shared with them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a story that many of you know. There are all kinds of books written about it. Why? It's a shocking story for us as Christians. But here's what I'd, I'd like to ask this morning. Why is that a shocking story? In light of these truths, why is that a unique and shocking story? Why are we not shocked by this story? Johnny worked his whole life, made a whole bunch of money. Eventually he made enough money that he was able to buy a house outside of the city where he could be in privacy, he could be secluded. Eventually he made enough money that he could retire early. He retired younger than all of his friends. He didn't have to be around those people at work anymore. Didn't need to be around those people in his neighborhood anymore. And he lived there for the last 35 years of his life, indulging in his hobbies and his pleasures. And one day he stood before the judge, the king of all kings. He stood before the Lord Jesus Christ, who had the wounds in his hands and in his side. The one who came to seek and save the lost. And he had to answer to the judge and to tell him why he spent his life his blood-bought life, avoiding people, hiding from the world, hoarding his gift. That story should shock us. That's the story that we see all around us in the church. That's the story that is being perpetuated in every congregation, in every city in this country, in this continent, probably in this world. Shouldn't that shock us? Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were just living like they believe that the Bible is true. One of the missionaries who went with Jim, Nathan, Nathaniel Saint, he wrote in a Christmas letter, here you get a heart, you get a glimpse into the heart of these missionaries who would risk their lives. They said, he wrote back, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned as they hurtle headlong into the Christless night without ever a chance. May we shed tears of repentance for those who we have failed to bring out of darkness. That sounds like a person who's read the Bible and believes it. That sounds like a person who leaned in close before the ascension when Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what, Jesus? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus said, I'm going, but I'm going to be back. And while I'm gone, I'm giving you power and I'm giving you an assignment. Church, I want to do something with you right now. This is one of, the, one of the blessings of not being together in this room. 
If we were in this gym, we would all hear this, and we would say, I should do something about that. And, and we would assume, well, somebody next to me is probably going to do a little more about that. We'd go out, and, and we would th- make this all theoretical, pat ourselves on the back for past achievement. Here's what I want you to do. I assume you're listening right now in your living room or maybe on your mobile device. I want you to stand up. I want you to walk to the window. I want you right now to look out your window. Please, get up off your couch. Just do this. Look out the window. How many houses do you see? One, three, four. How many people, how many eternal souls are living in those houses? I wonder, do you know their names? I wonder, has anyone ever told them that there's a God who made them? A God who loves them? A God who is holy and just? A God whose moral laws are written into the fabric of this world? A God that they're going to stand before one day? Has anyone ever told them that Jesus came to do for them what they can never do? That it's completed, it's finished? That when they stand before God, what he's looking for is whether or not they've placed their trust in the completed work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Has anyone told them that Jesus died for their sins so that they wouldn't have to? Do they know? One day we'll stand before the judge. You might just be standing next to that neighbor. Can you imagine what it will be like when your neighbor steps forward and they hear the verdict and they look up at the judge and they say, I didn't know. How many of our neighbors will say that? If we believe this, how can we not tell them? Who is going to tell that neighbor? Who, who, who is positioned? Who else in the world is thinking about the eternal soul of that person right now, that house that you're looking at? Who else in the world is praying for them? Who else in the world is positioned to share with them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's you, Christian. It's you. If we believe this, it has to change us. It has to change us. Finally, if you believe in the return of Christ and the final judgment, then you, you believe that we will all be judged for our works. Now I imagine as I say that, you're probably leaning in and saying, that doesn't sound quite right. You've got Bible verses popping into your mind. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so you've got this voice in your head saying, no, that, that can't be right. Right? I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ. I'm saved by his works, Pastor. And of course, that's absolutely right. You are not saved by works. Correct. But you are judged for works. Look at the scene again in Revelation 20. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So there is the book of life in which all of the blood-bought people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, their names are written in that book and they are saved. By grace you've been saved through faith in Christ. Amen. But there are other books. And the the dead are judged according to what they had done. 
Not with regard to our salvation, that was secured by Christ, but with regard to our reward. Even still, some of you are, are skeptical. Well, I want you to lean in again. Hear this from 1 Corinthians 3. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Likewise, in Matthew 6, Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when we consider this idea of being judged for our works and, and some kind of reward in heaven, we bristle. Uh, I bristle at this. I've, I've talked to many Christians who bristle at this because there's something inside of us that feels like there needs to be a complete and absolute equality of outcome for everyone. But is that biblical? God has called us to labor in his vineyard, called us to be his witnesses called us to put our shoulders to the plow. He's given us an assignment. Some Christians lean into that and give it all that they have. But can we be honest? Some Christians don't. Some Christians coast. Some Christians take that gift and, and they, they could care less, it seems, by the way that they live their life. Now, by the grace of God, if both of those people have put their trust in Christ, even though they've responded differently, both will be in glory forever because Jesus Christ died for their sin, even the sin of apathy. Both will receive that eternal reward. Both will be happy in heaven. Of course they will. But will they receive the same reward in heaven? Look again at 1 Corinthians 3. Listen close. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So he's talking about our ministry. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So if, if all of your life's ministry, it's, it's put before the Lord and it's burned up before you, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I mean, there are some people who are saved. They're going to they're gonna be in the kingdom of God, but it's like they escaped from fire. All the things that they devoted their life to burnt up in flames. It, none of it had any eternal value. And yet here they are in the kingdom of heaven. Some people just ignore the commands of the Lord. Some people coast through life. And while they, they can be saved through faith in Christ, that's true, when they stand before the judge, it's going to be very different for them than it is for, say, Jim Elliott or Elizabeth Elliott, as it should be. That's what we see, and that's a truth that should change us. We'll be judged by our works. Now, to that end, I want to very quickly now as we close, I want to just give two closing thoughts as we prepare for this final judgment. Right. If these truths should change us and we're, we're getting ready for that return of the Lord and the final judgment, we should prepare. Two ways we can prepare. First of all, and, and most important, make sure that your name is written in the book of life. I hope that's been clear throughout this sermon, but just in case, I don't want to take it for granted. Let me state this clearly. If you're listening right now and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if, if you're listening right now, and, and you're putting your trust in your own righteousness, your own good works, and, and you're going to stand before God one day and say, look at how, how good I am, you need to know that you are on a path that leads to eternal destruction. Jesus said this. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said, that's how you prepare for this coming judgment. Repent and believe in the gospel. To repent is to acknowledge your sin before God. To say sorry, to let it go, and to turn away. And right now, maybe you you can see those things in your mind. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's that addiction. Jesus is saying, you need to put that on the table and say, I I don't want this, I want you. That repent. By the grace of God, turn. Now, that might, that might be a, a difficult process. That might be a two steps forward, one step back process. But that's repentance. And then he says, believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that you could never live. It's his righteousness that we're saved by. Right? Believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he bore the curse and the penalty for your sin. The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus paid that death for you. Believe that. Believe that he descended to the dead and he broke the chains of sin and death so that you and I could be free. Believe that he proved it as he rose again from the tomb, proving that the death, death has no hold on us anymore. Believe that he ascended to the Father where he right now is seated, reigning over all, interceding for his people. Believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope for life everlasting. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. And your name will be written in the book of life. And you'll be cleansed with the blood of Jesus. And you'll be ready to stand before that judge. But once you've done that, and here's where we're going to close today. With an eye to the eternal kingdom that lies in store. Invest your time, talent, and treasure in things that eternally matter. Right? If all of this is true. Then take that time, that talent, that treasure, whatever you've got. And invest it in the only things that really matter. For eternity. If you've got your Bible open, flip ahead to Matthew 24. Flip back, I guess, if you were in Acts 1. Matthew 24, this is in the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus has been describing this day of the Lord, this day of his return. And he tells a series of parables explaining to his people how they should live in light of this reality. And we don't have time to unpack all those parables, so I'm, I'm summarizing the, the totality of those with just this one point. Invest your time, talent, and treasures in things that eternally matter. To those who do that, to those who who lay it on the table for him, the master will return and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, but I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But there are some who will be found to be negligent. Some who disregard this teaching of the return of Christ and the final judgment. Some who thumb their noses at the master who don't want him to be the Lord of their lives. And when he returns, he'll say, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christian, I want to just highlight two two ways that we can use our time, talents, and treasures for things that eternally matter. First of all, just as we've been saying thus far, witness. Christian, what are you living for? What do, you, what do you think about through the day? What are you passionate about? What drives you? Jesus gave us a mission, and it's to be his ambassadors, his witnesses in the world. Does that shape your life? If it doesn't, can I plead with you this morning? Let that shape your life. Let that shape the way that you behave at work. Let that shape the way that you lead your family. Let that shape the way that you engage with your neighbors. The way that you choose where you're going to live. Let that shape your hobbies. Let that shape your bank account. You have been called to resemble Christ in this world. 
Is that what you're living for? Let's give them our all. That's our assignment. But now I want to, we've hit that, and so I just want to close here. He's also called us to love his people. So let me read this large section from Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34b. Jesus said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Why do we get to inherit this? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Remember when Jesus' earthly family came and they were looking for him and someone said, your, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked around. He said, these who do, who do the will of my father, these are my mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. Jesus is teaching us in this parable that what we do for the people of God eternally matters. So I want you to think about that. When you invest your time in calling that isolated brother or sister, praying with them on the phone, letting them know that they're not forgotten, going on a walk with them, when you invest your time in those relationships, that eternally matters. Remember 1 Corinthians 3 where he talks about those things that are built up? Some of those things when the fire comes, they're going to go away because it didn't matter. This is one of the things that when the fire comes, that's going to stand the test. The time you invest in caring for the people of God, that eternally matters. The talent that you invest as you make that lasagna for that, that young mom in, in the church who just had the kids or, or that time that you invest in or the talent you invest in making that meal for that, that woman in the church whose child's in the hospital, that eternally matters. God sees that and delights in that. That treasure that you invest in supporting those pastors in South Africa or in India, that eternally matters. These are the things he's pleased with. David Platt writes, A heart that is truly trusted in Christ and a life that is truly longing for Christ will be consumed with serving men and women who are in Christ. I want to just conclude with this little illustration. Again, I'm going to ask you to do this. I imagine many of you are sitting at home and you're not going to do this, but just would you indulge me? Hold out your hand for a moment. Just put it in front of you. And just... Think right now about what it will be like when you stand on that day of judgment and you stand before the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose own hands are still bare the wounds where he bore our sin on the cross. And you'll stand with your hands like this. And in that line, you'll look to the left of you and to the right of you and you will see all people from all time awaiting this judgment. And in your hands, you'll have the times and the talents and the treasures that he entrusted to you. Just think about this for a moment. As you look across that line, who, who in that line has more treasures entrusted to them than you, North American Christian? You live in the wealthiest nation this world has ever known. And you're going to have all that treasure. You'll be standing next to the widow with her might standing next to the mom who watched her child starve to death. And you got your treasure here before the Lord, and you're going to have to give an account for what you did with it. You got your time 
Think about it. You're standing next to the, to the father who, who had to labor all day in the field and came home and couldn't do anything at night because there was no light, light a little candle. Had a lifetime that was much shorter than yours because we've been able to elongate our days. You've got more time than the rest of them. And you're holding on to all that talent that God has entrusted to you. And you're going to stand before the judge. And you're going to look him in the eye. And you're going to tell the Lord Jesus who you love. The Lord Jesus who gave of himself so freely to save you. You're going to hold all that in your hand. And you're going to have to give an account for what you did. Are you, are you ready for that day? Are you living as if you believe that that day is coming? Because Christian, it is. We're going to look him in the eye. This doctrine, this doctrine, every time we revisit it, should cause us to do an audit of our lives. You should come out of this sermon. You know what you should do? You should look at your bank account. And you should look at, what am I investing my treasure in? Take a look at your house. Am I ready to stand before King Jesus and to give an account for this? You should look at your, your family calendar and say, what are we doing with our lives? Am I ready? Like when I stand and I, I've got this thing and the fire comes, what is going to stand the test? It should cause us to do an audit. It should cause us to look again to our Lord and Savior Jesus and say, do I believe that he's worth it? Do I believe that he's coming? Do I believe I'm going to look him in the eyes and I'm going to answer to him? Because if I do, that should change me. When I stand and when I look him in the eyes, what do I want more than anything in the world? Christian, what do you want? You want to hear him say this. Well done good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Who is sufficient for these things? To that end, I want to just invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge, we acknowledge that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of what you deserve. And, and we remember right now, Lord, because all of, all of this striving that you are worthy of, all of it, it's rooted in, in this grace that we've received. We know that Jesus lived the perfect life because we can't. We know that's true. We are resting in that and we are trusting in that. And as we see that, it fills us with gratitude. And Lord, that gratitude should change us. So please help us now. Help anyone who's listening right now who is maybe feeling compelled by guilt who's maybe feeling compelled by shame. Lord, I know that those, that's not a fuel that will press us through the coming weeks and months. We need to be driven by gratitude. We need to be driven by love. We need to be driven by this joy of the Lord. So I just pray, God, that you would help us to see when we stand before you that we're going to give an account for how we responded to this amazing gift that we've received. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to comprehend your grace your glory, your goodness, your worthiness of worship. I pray that we would comprehend that in such a way that it would compel us to move. Lord, I need to tell my neighbor about you, not because I want to save my neighbor from hell, though I do. I need to tell my neighbor about you because you deserve the praise of my neighbor. You're so amazing that my neighbor needs to know that. They need to know that there is a life and life in fullness in you. They need to see that there's a joy unspeakable, full of glory in you. They need to respond to you so that they can share the gospel with their family and their friends. God, that needs to be what drives us. So I pray right now that you would just give us a proper motivation 
And Lord, I acknowledge if I've, if I've heaped on guilt, if I've put on that kind of worldly impetus, Lord, I pray that that would fall to the floor because that never changes a heart. But grace does. So by your grace, would you change us and press us forward, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' holy, saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?